Let me welcome Mark from uh, Ashland, Virginia. Hey, everybody. My name is Mark. I'm an alcoholic. Sure glad to be here. Uh, my sobriety date, so I don't forget to say it, it's December 27, 1994. And I'll tell you, the longest 30 minutes of my life was between was the 30 minutes preceding this talk. I swear to God, that is a, that is a long 30 minutes. <laughs> I've taken tests and going through that stuff he was talking about. I wasn't half as concerned about it. I, I swear to God, it's a strange thing about being among people like y'all. But anyway, it's good to be here. Had a great time getting here. It's good. It's good to see old friends and stuff like that. And uh, and, and I just start with a little story. It's a funny one. It has to do with Harold, as most stories with Harold are funny. But um, <laughs> this one this is a weird thing. Some time ago, uh, my kid and I were tooling around the country, going somewhere on vacation, and I was in a pool, swimming around with my kid. And there was a guy swimming with his kid in the pool. It wasn't an A event. It was just somewhere in this country. I don't even remember where. I don't think Harold does either. And I looked at him in the pool. There were all kinds of other people in the pool. And, uh, and I said, hey, do you want to play Marco Polo? <laughs> I don't usually say that to people. And he said, I haven't before. I hadn't since. And, and he said, sure. And so he, he and our kids, we played Marco Polo for a while. And we didn't talk about anything like that. And we just, at the end of the game, we parted ways and we didn't see each other for years. And sometime later, now, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I, I, we, was at, we were at a convention somewhere. And I looked and I said, my gosh, you look familiar. What a weird thing that is. And we pieced it together that we were in a pool somewhere in this country playing Marco Polo. I just think that's kind of funny the way God sticks people together. Had another one like that. Had a little bit to do with Wallace Bryant. You know, we, when we came in town, I just tell one story about Wallace. When we came in town, we, uh, we, 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 we didn't get signed up quick enough to get a room in this hotel so we went to a pretty pretty bad part of town to get a, get a room, and we did. And and I was concerned. I was looking out in the middle of the night. I was looking at my car, and uh, and I saw this woman standing around it and stuff. So I go out there. I said, "Man, I want to see what's going on." And uh, and and she said, "Well, I'm just I'm just." She was obviously a woman of the night, that kind of thing. And she and she said, "I and she I said, what are you doing?'" She said, "I'm just looking for business." I said, well, I'm, "Okay." She said, "What are you doing here?" I said, well, I'm from AA. I'm an alcoholic. So I used to live here in Southern Pines. She said, oh, do you know Wallace Bryant? <laughs> now, that, that, so I don't know about Wallace. <laughs> so those are both my two stories. <laughs> um, so <laughs> you have to get up with her later. At any rate. My sobriety date, December 27, 1994, and uh, got sober in Dunn, North Carolina, and that's not far from here. If anybody's ever been to Dunn, that's a good place to get sober, and it's just where I kind of washed up at the end of my alcoholic journey. It started for me, you know, I, I was kind of born like any other kid, I guess. Uh, I, I didn't come out breach or anything like that. It just came, came out straight, straight out, as far as I know. Came into the world and everything was going, uh, well, it's just a strange place. It seemed like when I arrived, it was an unnerving place to me, it felt like. When I looked around the world, I, when I looked around at folks, folks looked comfortable. Now, I'm just naturally, I'm a, I'm a type A person. I was never going to go away, and I quit fighting that. At all I've done, what I do now is I try and put a rudder on it and go straight forward. And that's just what I'm designed to do. That is just in my genes. It's never going to leave me. And the more I accept it, the better I am. So, 
I came out, but I was just full of fear. Very uneasy around folks, just always felt separated from people, didn't feel any connection with them. Those are the very first and most prominent memories of my life. I don't remember much of my childhood except being absolutely filled with that from the beginning to as long as I can remember. It was, the, it was just the first feelings I thought, felt, and, uh, and I just, I just the way it was for me. I was a guy looking for a solution from the very, very beginning, and that was me. Um, and so I began my journey looking for a solution. Life, you know, I got kind of batted around as a kid. You know, I, I could tell my family was kind of full of fear as well. And my father kind of put into me this thing that, that you kind of hear it in Bill Wilson's story about this thing about being number one. And I don't know if he really put it in me, but I sure heard it. I needed to be number one. And I lived like that. Life was a competition for which I had to win. And there was no second place. because I don't know if he told me any of this, to be quite frank. It seemed paradoxical that I seemed to be hearing this, yet he worked in a large paper mill where he wasn't number one and got along with everybody else quite Got along fine. But I seem to be hearing, you got to be number one. Now, if that's true or not, I don't know. But I, I, I really engaged the world that way and just went wholeheartedly at it. And, and I thought at the end of that was the relief of my fear. I really thought that if I could just get to, get to the top and dominate everything underneath me, I'd be all right. And, and I really threw myself into it. And, of course, even at a young age, that didn't make any sense. How am I going to be number one over everything? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I didn't think that would work, but, but I, I continued to just do exactly that, just, just with dogged determination. Um, and the Bill Wilson talked about that boomerang he made coming back and cutting them to pieces, and I started working on my boomerang. I just didn't know what was going to be the outcome of what I was doing. I didn't know it wouldn't work. That sort of self-centeredness would destroy me, would come back and destroy me. I had no idea. It just seemed if I could just get over this next hump, Things would be better, and there was always a next hump. I can't even remember what they were, but there's always a next hump. So I went off. I just kind of went like that. Well, the first thing I remember is I had to be the toughest guy in school, and that just seemed to I me mean, that you got to be the toughest guy in school, and that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> I mean, anybody with any basic knowledge of mathematics and statistics knows it, it, it's unlikely, but I didn't, and uh, although I understood numbers. But the, the alcoholic mind is a keen thing. It, it, I, didn't, I didn't think to stop trying and I was. I was the toughest guy in school for one year. It was the third grade. <laughs> and uh, I really was. I, I took Derek Williams out. <laughs> and, uh, and that was fantastic, man. I was riding, riding high on the hog until Kenneth Baker came to school. <laughs> he was a big old kid. And one day we were walking back from the, from the, the recess. And we're walking along, and, and I don't know if people may identify with this, and he said to me, he said as we were getting closer to the school, he said, Mark, why is it you get so tough the closer we get to the school at the end of recess? I'd give him, I, that's when I started giving him crap, when we were close to the school where, he, where nothing bad could happen. But when we were out around behind the trees and stuff, I wasn't like that. That was even curious to me. That's just the kind of stuff that was inside of me. That's just how it was for me. I was eaten up, consumed with that kind of stuff. Uh, one of the first reliefs I found from that was in sports and just trying to excel. I couldn't excel in team sports because that required a team. And you can't, how can you be number one when you're out there with a whole bunch of folks on your team? So team sports wasn't my cup of tea. I had to find individual sports. The first one I found out, if you're type A personality and as afraid as I was, the first sport I found was wrestling. And that, you know, that gives you, you're out there and you've got all this adrenaline and you're just ready to go. And you can do it on the wrestling mat to a point. 
Now, if you wrestle with somebody who's good, all that energy you got is going to be used against you, and you're going to be pinned in about 20 seconds. But, but for a little while in the second grade, and or seventh grade, it, it worked out. So I threw myself into that, and I threw myself into that the same way um, I threw myself into everything. If we had one wrestling practice a day, I did it three times. I would run in the morning, go to the practice, and then after school, I would, I would, I would, or after practice, I'd go home and run at night. And my, my thought was, just like Bill Wilson, if I just outwork everybody else, I'm going to make it to the top. I'll win. It worked a little bit. <laughs> then there came a fly in the ointment. And that, that fly came with kind of the keen alcoholic mind. I discovered what a calorie was. And I discovered that I could actually change my weight class by not, uh, by not eating. It didn't dawn on me I would also change my strength by not eating. But, but that... <laughs> That was academic. So I'd go in the locker room, and we'd line up, we'd strip down, and, and those guys, the other team, would in there. It, that was back in the day when you could, you could, we actually took off our clothes around other guys in the locker room. <laughs> I mean, nowadays it'd be some sort of sexual assault charge or something. But I, I, I. so both teams are standing there in their underwear, and and the other the wrestler would get up on the on the thing, and he'd weigh up and kind of look at you tough, and then and then we'd get up and and look at him kind of tough. And I, and I'd always look at the guy beneath that guy in the weight class I was in and wish I were wrestling him because he was smaller. So I thought, now, if I can get down to that weight class, I could surely beat that guy. Makes good sense. So I'd get down to that weight class in the next, next wrestling match. I would, we would do the same thing. We'd get up there. And I'd look at my guy, and he, again, looked big. But the guy below him looked smaller. And that went on and on and on. I developed what looked like anorexia. Now, when you get really skinny like that, it's... It's hard to wrestle. <laughs> so, you know, I was kind of scratching my head, perplexed by the keen alcoholic mind. It just it wasn't doing anything for me so far. I was convinced if I just worked harder, tried some other way of doing it, that they would come out, I'd come out on top. And uh, that didn't work out in wrestling. All I got out of that was an eating disorder. By the end of the season... <laughs> By the end of the season, the wrestling season ended, I couldn't eat. I mean, I, I'm like, damn, if I, I didn't win any matches, but I'm damn sure not going to eat. I won that thing. <laughs> Look, y'all, that's a, that, that, you, you can't hold that. That is, a, that is a near, those are very close. Making weight versus winning. I mean, to me, if I did, I mean, so I'm off a little notch. I'm not even wrestling anymore, not eating. But in my, you could see the insanity started to set in. By the time I was 15, I started thinking I was, I was a little bit insane. It started dawning on me I was. And uh, is George in here? I, I found out, y'all, I figured out what happened to George. Keen alcoholic. My George didn't say his watch back from daylight savings time. Yeah, I think we all owe him. <laughs> we all owe him an amends. <laughs> I know that's what happened to him. <laughs> so it, 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 pretty much that my, that's the way it was for me as a young guy. You know, I had that kind of intensity. I kind of threw myself into stuff like that. And the, and the effect was about, well, that's what the effect was. It, it didn't work very well. So after that, uh, high school came along, and I discovered what we all discovered. I, I found relief from my condition in the form of alcohol. And the uh, first few times I drank, nothing happened. It, uh, it took a little bit for it to take, and I can remember the time it did. I remember the day it did. And when it took... I was off to the horse races. I felt like a million dollars. 
I felt like I could do anything. I felt connected to other people. Those, those nagging relationships with women that were so frightening to me uh, were off of me. Um, I just plain felt great. I just absolutely loved everything it did for me. I didn't think it out loud that I would drink every opportunity I could, um, but I planned to do it. It was something that was just intrinsic inside of me, and, I, and that's just exactly what I was going to do. So I went on through uh, junior high and high school, and things went relatively all right. I played those individual sports when I could, made it through. Didn't really get in any trouble, did a lot of drinking, did a lot of goofy stuff. But in Tacoma, Washington in the 80s, if you were a young drinking kid in a blue-collar community like mine, you just didn't get in trouble. The police would almost always, I always say almost always, I tell you about that, almost always cut you some slack. And I did a lot of crazy things. I mean, we just absolutely, I, I loved drinking, loved everything it would do for me. What time do we wrap up? Shall we? When you get done. <laughs> don't tell me that. What is it, uh, 2.30? I don't want to go too far. Say it again. 1.35. Thank you. Okay, yeah. No, I know it's 1.35. 2.30. 30, thank you. I got that part. Thank you. <laughs> Who said what? So, <laughs> it, I had a great time. It was a great time cutting up. Just had a, it was just plain fun. We, I would do things like uh, I worked in a restaurant. We'd, we would steal eggs and throw them at cars. I just absolutely love that. Sometimes I'd, I could steal 144 eggs in one shot because they came in a huge box, and, and my buddy would meet me out back, and we'd load them up and throw them all night at everything that moved. God knows. <laughs> Police were our most delightful targets. I mean, yeah, those... The one time there was a long chain link fence that separated us from a gas station that had a police car parked in it. And we stayed on one side lobbing eggs over onto the police car while they were there. And they, would not, they couldn't get across the fence. They were not, we could do, we would run back in the woods. It was more fun than you could have. I mean, I loved it. I loved, loved everything alcohol do for me. God, we had fun with the police. I just, I mean, I, you could get chased in your car that way. Folks would chase you all around town, and you just like you know, just, you drive crazy trying to get away, and they're chasing you, man. It was a fun time. I really have no regret about that time in my life. <laughs> Do lawn jobs, get drunk. <laughs> Had some sex in my car. That was nice too. <laughs> uh, had a little. I had some problems in that area, but I'll get to that. <laughs> just, just thinking about how that ended up. You know, I don't think I did any better in sex than I did in controlling my weight in wrestling. I think that the results were kind of similar, but in different ways. Um, <laughs> it's amazing the consequences that you can have from having sex. I mean, <laughs> where did this come from? How did this happen? It was not a one-time occurrence. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, at any rate. So high school was fun, had a lot of fun, got a, got a lot of trouble. Um, one night we were out having a great time. I graduated from the junior college, and it was a great graduation. I did what everybody does at, at college graduation. I had a fifth of Southern Comfort, went around and filled all the little flower vases on the tables at the graduation ceremony, just in case others as well as myself wanted to drink out of the vase. And uh, <laughs> didn't want to keep it all to myself. And on the way home... Uh, it, well, we were having a nice ride home in the car, me and another guy, and we were drinking the rest of that Southern Comfort, and, and that's primarily what we were doing at that point. I don't think we were doing anything else. Not that it was beyond me ever to do anything else. Uh, it, uh, I, I, don't, I can only say this. The only one time in my life I said no to something uh, other than alcohol, 
And uh, there was only one time. And then the other guy went and did it himself. And I, and I said to myself, then I'll never say no again. That was a real letdown. <laughs> so we're driving along drinking the Southern Comfort. And we notice a police officer in the uh, other lane. And, uh, and there's a divider that separates us from them. And, I, and that divider is when you're on that side of the road, you're pretty much obligated to go on another highway. You can't stay on I-5. At least I never could when you're on that side of the divider. <laughs> Those police cars are amazing, I'm telling you. So we pulled up beside him and offered him a drink. They didn't seem thirsty, and he seemed insulted. We gave him a finger. We were too insulted. (laughs) And I had, at that time, I still have it, a 1969 Corvette that I got as a child from being bitten by a dog in the face. And uh, we we sued the people, and and we kept the money. I got the money. It was $5,000 worth of much. But when I turned 18, it was wisely invested over like that two decades. It was now $6,000. And uh, <laughs> the keen alcoholic mind. Um, and, but being that I was getting ready to go to college, it would seem awfully reasonable to contribute that to college and that sort of thing. So I bought a Corvette with it. And uh, <laughs> so he was over there. We were over here in my Corvette. And, and, and so we said, well, it's time to blow this party. This is over. So I just dropped a hammer on that Corvette, and we took off. And we just kept on driving and drinking and having a good time. And lo and behold, it wasn't, it wasn't 30 seconds later I looked in the mirror, and that cop had somehow gotten back on I-5. Now, I don't know how he did it, and he was behind us with his lights going. Well, now, you know, I've never been, I've, never, I've always been a reasonable person, I think. <laughs> Poor judgment, but reasonable. <laughs> so... He had the lights, and some other policemen were coming. I, I don't know what it is. In Tacoma, Washington, on a Tuesday night, they must not have much to do. I swear to God, every windshield's emptied out. I mean, donuts were flying out of cop cars. They were coming from nowhere. <laughs> so I knew what to do, so I just dropped the hammer on that Corvette, and we took off. <laughs> I did. And I, we got going so fast that we couldn't get off the highway. And this was, if people tell you you can't get away from the police on TV, like with the helicopter and the light, that's because they're not showing you the ones where the people did get away. <laughs> I got away. I want you to. They didn't have a helicopter then. But they had a lot of police cars. And so we were, we were going about 135, and, uh, and we just kept around going. Couldn't get off the highway because we were going too fast. We finally slowed down, slow enough to get off the highway. Got off it real quick, and all those police cars kept coming. I thought they'd just keep going, but they, they, was, they kept coming. And they chased us through town, and, uh, and oddly enough, we made a couple turns and got just far enough ahead of them, and we were just close enough to this guy's house where we could park the car, jump out of it, and, and get away. And, and as young people, our idea of getting away was run in the house, take off our clothes, and jump into bed. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's exactly what we did. And it, I can still see with the blindfold the silhouette of these officers walking around the outside of that house looking for us. They didn't, it didn't take them a couple seconds to find the car. They, they knocked on the door, and out we came. And, uh, and they asked me, they said, were you driving that car? I said, I said no. well, I was about two hours ago. And never mind, the car is sitting in the, it's sitting in the flower garden, and it's so hot, and the motor's making a little tick, tick, tick sound. <laughs> Steam's coming out of it. I mean, it's, it's skid marks into the... I said, yeah, it's been a few hours, officer. And so they put us in the car and interrogated us and uh, threatened us. And they tried this thing, the good cop, bad cop routine. Don't fall for it. Man, I, I recognized it right from the get-go. 
And I didn't say a word, but there was one policeman that was amazingly friendly and sensitive, and, and the other was just brutal. And, and the nice one keeps saying, now tell me, son, why did you do that? He said, could you just tell me why you did it? And I just, I didn't say a word. And so nothing happened to us that night. They gave us a ride home in the morning at shift change and uh, turned me loose. And we talked about the alcoholism, the disease in the family. It turned me loose to my father. They told him what they think had happened. They felt certain had happened. And absolutely uh, nothing happened to me. Not that it would have made a difference if it had. I, I had that thing in me. That thing was already in me. Now, I don't know if that's alcoholism or pre-alcoholism, but I just had this tendency to do those sorts of things. And that sort of thing just kind of followed me my whole life. Uh, it, 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 those sorts of things, I, I, I continued to drink heavily every chance I could get. Not uncommonly blacked out, did strange things while blacked out, wake up with strangers in my house. I lost my car almost every time I drank because I blacked out. I had to call people to find out where it was. And I, I always did find it, usually. And uh, <laughs> that's the kind of drinking I did. Got into a community college, made it through that, had that one little debacle. I, did, I had some trouble in classes because I would, Tuesdays was, it seemed to me, a good night to drink because it was between the weekend and then there was another weekend. So right in the middle of the week, you just had to stay a little loose on a Tuesday. So we'd get good and drunk on Tuesdays, and literature class was on Wednesday. I could never figure out why I did so poorly in literature. I, I flunked that one, but otherwise, junior college was success. Got into a four-year school. I don't know why. <laughs> they were just generous. Uh, at that point, I, I, I knew I had to do something with my drink. And now I'll just say this. I smoked a lot of marijuana, but, but I made a decision to quit that because that wasn't good. And I knew that. And I, I, before I went on to four-year school, I said, you know, Mark, you're going to have to clean up your life. You need to quit smoking that dope. That stuff will kill you. <laughs> I felt a lot better. You know, I got <laughs> a lot better. I, I'm going to do it the legal way. Ain't nothing wrong with some good, clean drinking. I mean, we all know that. Yes, I did. But when I got uh, to a four-year institution, I, I knew uh, my lifestyle wasn't conducive to, to doing well in the four-year institution. And... Uh, and, and, I, and when I was young, my father told me, he said, you need to be a doctor or a lawyer. You can pick which one you want. Now, I'd had no idea what lawyers do, and I still, well, I, the only thing I know they do now is get you out of trouble. But uh, I didn't want to do that. So I decided I wanted to be a doctor. That sounded awfully nice. He'd given me a ride around town, showing me people with big houses, and says, you'd like to have a big house, right? And I said, yeah. And if you go, if you do these things, you can, you, can, you can do that. Now, never mind, I never had any inkling of desire to help anybody, cure any disease, do anything like that. <laughs> and along the way, some people detected that in me. <laughs> um, I thought they were just treating me unfairly, to be quite frank. <laughs> I mean, after all, I met the admission criteria. All you got to do is well on the test. It doesn't say you have to be moral, ethical, have a concern for other people's welfare. Where are they getting this stuff from? Um, so, you know, I, I went through, I, I uh, did the undergraduate thing, had, had good grades, got accepted. I, I, well, I was in Seattle, Washington, and I applied to the University of Washington Medical School and went to the interview, and they asked me, to, and I was, at this point, I was in, I was in the upper 5% of the applicant pool for, for doctors. I had a really high GPA, and I got that through a lot of different techniques, cheating, begging. <laughs> 
You can cheat on tests. I mean, you, you, I, wrote the, I wrote formulas, like a pencil has five, six sides to it. If you write small enough, you can actually write on the sides of your pencil. <laughs> it, it looks funny when you're, you're, you're reading them in the test, but I, I did that. It wasn't uncommon. I'll just say that. One time I cheated off a guy in medical school. His name was Gavin Jardine. And Gavin had big black rim glasses. I knew Gavin was smart. And he had the Ill, unfortunate deal of sitting 45 degrees from me. And I could see his paper. And I was sitting back there. Now, you mind you that normal doctors don't think like this. This isn't what, the rest aren't doing this. I want to reassure you <laughs> that, there, that this was, that you, you probably have good, competent doctors. So, So I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, damn, this test is hard, and there's a reason for it. I hadn't been studying. I had wanted to become a professional soccer player. I was playing in a co-ed league, co-ed intramural league, and I uh, had watched professional soccer on TV and thought that I was almost up to that level. And so, <laughs> and so I said, that is the truth. I told my friend, I'm going to be a professional goalie. These women in this co-ed league, I could play against tougher. And, uh, and I'd also been doing a fair amount of drinking at that time and other, other sorts of things. So... Uh, where was that story going? <laughs> well, something bad was getting ready to happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Gavin was sitting there, and I thought, damn, I don't know the answer to this. And I looked at Gavin's paper, and Gavin had those black glasses, and I knew he knew something. And so I just changed my answers to be exactly like his. And the test was over about five minutes to the end, and I'm kind of just thinking, man, what good fortune for me. And I look at my answers, and I look at the question. I knew a little bit about what was in the test, and I looked, and they were all wrong. Even I knew better than that. Gavin was dumber than me. I mean, <laughs> the keen alcoholic mind is not serving me well. <laughs> so I changed my answers back. I ended up getting a D in medical school on that, and uh, well, that's just life, you know. <laughs> you know, we always fall uphill. With that D, I went, I interviewed for residencies, and I, and I asked a guy one day, I said, where are you going to rank me in this thing called the match? And he said, a lot higher than you deserve. <laughs> Those are the sorts of answers I got. So medical school went off. It, it went off without too big any, no major hitch. Made it through there. Had a lot of living problems. At this point, I'd begin living with and off women and, and just around them and stuff like that. Rarely lived alone. Consumed at that, that, that self-centered fear was with me every single day. And the only relief I could find came from a bottle. And that worked just fine for me. I know a guy going through medical school right now who's, who's he's not newly sober, but I'm convinced it's easier to go through medical school for an alcoholic drinking than it is sober. Drinking was a life that worked. It just plain worked. At that point in my life, it worked perfect. I could, it, it, I could relieve my anxiety. I could live the lie. I didn't have to be truthful to anybody. I could just go through life like that, and it worked fantastic. It worked like that all through medical school, quite well, in fact. It did all right in residency. It was getting a little bad in that, in that neck of the woods. I graduated, and I decided, I thought, what should I be? I looked at all the medical specialties, and I thought, what do I have an inclination for? What, what would be of interest to me? What are my natural aspirations? And, and I, so I decided to be an anesthesiologist. <laughs> now, I want to reassure you now that, that all of your anesthesiologists haven't had the experiences I've had. I just want you to know that. But I'd also have to take credit for knowing more about the anesthetics and how they affect people than any other anesthesiologist. 
Now, I've not been able to publish any of this research. <laughs> so it's real waste. I want you to know. That, you know that I know what the agents do quite well. <laughs> it was like, I, to me, it just seemed wonderful. I noticed that when we anesthetized folk, they looked a lot like I did when I was drunk. <laughs> and, and I think that the attending anesthesiologists who I were, were training me thought it was peculiar that I had so much joy in my work. I mean, I, to me, the operation was kind of kind of a secondary thing. But the, the trip that the guy was getting ready to go on, now that's where it was at. <laughs> I, he said, how's this surgery going to try? I don't know, but you're going to like this. <laughs> and that's just where I lived. That, to me, was, you know, I thought, man, it is your lucky day. You're having your gallbladder removed or <laughs> transplant of some organ or something like that. I hope, uh, anyway, but that wasn't the common with any other anesthesiologist. <laughs> so that went along quite nicely. I gained a fair knowledge of the anesthetic agents and um, had a good time during that. And, and during residency, I was in Chicago, and man, did I learn to drink, and man, did I love to drink. I loved everything about it. I loved the Chicago nightlife. I loved everything it brought, the anonymity. I see a few folks nodding. Yeah, man, that was fun. The nightlife was great. But two things about I just tell you this, if you're going to go back to drinking and go to Chicago, just two things. The weekday drinking is better than the weekend drinking, and I'll tell you why. Because on the weekends, all these non-alcoholics are out there, and they will ruin a perfectly good bar. It, it, I mean, they're plugging things up. You can't find the other alcoholics to clown around with. You know, they're all messed up. And after 10.30 at night, there's no sense in going to a bar ever before 10.30 because alcoholics aren't that normal folks got it all diluted out. Yeah, the, the normal ones go home, go to work, and after 10.30 was the magic witching hour, as I used to call it. At 10.30, I need to be in that bar every single night. Never mind, I got up at 5 in the morning to go to work. That lifestyle had some consequence to it uh, in the form of amnesia. And uh, having an amnestic intern is not always a good thing. <laughs> in fact, they began to notice it. Um, I would come to work the next morning. Uh, I'd come to get in my car, battle my way down Lakeshore Drive, come to work, and uh, um, I had forgotten every patient just about from the night before or the day before to that day. And so I would introduce myself to everybody as though I had just met them for the first time. Some of them had been there for weeks. <laughs> they, they started noticing that. And one day my boss said, she said, I didn't notice it. It was all news to me. She said, Mark, is something bothering you? She was a resident above me. And I said, no, Carol, why is that you ask? She said, because every day you come here, you introduce yourself to the same patients as though you'd never, you introduce yourself every time. I said, no, Carol, I, that's not bothering me. And I'm thinking to myself, do I really do that? That can't be right. <laughs> to this day, I'm not sure she was telling the truth. But being, being an alcoholic, I, you know, I needed to do the responsible thing. And I knew that was wrong. I mean, I had a sense of morality. So I got a clipboard, and I wrote down everybody's name on it. And I put a little check, a little check beside each person. If they told me to do something with them, I put a little circle. It was open. If I did it, I checked it, and I wrote the result beside it. So I could continue to drink just as I was, and I didn't forget anything about anybody. Worked great until I lost the clipboard. <laughs> You've never seen an intern more frantic in your life. I said, I've run around that hospital. My God, it's just a clipboard. My friend's like, it's just a clipboard. I'm like, no, it's not just a clipboard. <laughs> So I did make it through there. I graduated. They didn't throw me out. Um, had a lot of fear always. You know, naturally, I'm, I'm consuming more and more alcohol. 
I'm drunk three out of four nights. The only reason I'm not drunk the fourth night is I'm on call taking care of patients. And during that time, I'm using anesthetics or other illegal substances um, because I, can't, I cannot stay sober at all anymore. And I made it through that residency um, unscathed. I, I discovered one other quick escape while I was there. When I, when I got my, my, my DEA or my pharmacy license where I could write a, pres a prescription, they quite naturally I decided to write it for myself. So after all, myself, well, I was the best patient I ever had. <laughs> so I've, I've written prescriptions for most things that... Uh, <laughs> It's like, a, wow, I can write it. Well, anabolic steroids always seemed like a reasonable thing to take to me. I was hanging out in a gym and stuff, so it seemed reasonable. <laughs> now, you wouldn't think that this frame could hold 220. I'm here to tell you again. <laughs> and then within six weeks, I went from looking like this to being 220 pounds. My neck was about this big around. People didn't recognize me anymore. They'd say, by God, what happened to you? But, but it, it cured the fear problem. I was no longer afraid of anybody. If you inject enough testosterone, the two things that were important to me in life were, were working really well at that point. I was ready to have sex with almost anybody, anytime, <laughs> anywhere. And if they had a boyfriend, I was ready to fight. <laughs> but I had it going on. Nowadays, they call that steroid rage, but to me, it seemed very natural. And... The people in the hospital didn't, no one took it. I think one person said, one, one person I worked with said, Mark, what happened to you? <laughs> like, I don't know. Why do you say that, Dr. Carranza? You know, like. So, you know, stuff like that happened to me. And that stuff made me crazy aggressive. It really did. I, I went through a phase, if you could imagine. Uh, I decided it was, it was time. I needed to carry a gun. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I tell you, like, the gun came after the steroids. When the steroids wear off, you get really afraid. And all the, mind you, this is all a, a fantastic treatment for alcoholism. It worked great. I wasn't drinking too much. It, well, that's not entirely true. But it helped me with the fear. So I stayed on the steroids. There's a lot of things that happen to you when you inject those things for a long time. I'll tell you this. You end up with a lot of meat and no potatoes. And... <laughs> If you can guess what that means, people say you, you can't take them forever. You will lose certain things in your in your physique. I, I want you to know mine are still here. Don't think that they didn't. <laughs> so, so I went through that phase. <laughs> I'll tell you what it is later. You look confused. <laughs> it's just my story. I got to stick to it. <laughs> Well, I came to the end of that steroid phase. I remember wondering how on earth am I ever going to quit taking this stuff because I was afraid of everything and everybody now. The fear that the alcoholism, we talk about that in alcoholism, I was eaten up by it, totally consumed by it, drinking as much as I could every chance I could, every, every, every night I could possibly drink. Um, I did manage to get off of those things, and, and I just threw myself all the harder into alcoholism. And, uh, and, and that's just, that just kind of how it went for me. The fear came very profound. One day I was in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in a gas station, and I was washing my car in the gas station. The car, uh, boy, it was, I did graduate. They did give me a medical degree, and I did go to work in Dunn, North Carolina. When I got there, somebody noticed I looked crazy, and the guy said to me, he said, you're not going to last a year here. He was so certain of that, he actually wrote it on the back of a, of, a, of, a, of a cabinet door. He said, here's the date I give you. To, you'll be out of here. Now, he was wrong. He wrote April. I was there till August. <laughs> so I, I'm a, when I see him one day, I'll tell him that. But I did last August. 
Well, I was in Atlanta and I was washing my car and drying it in the in the booth where you spray your car. And I'm washing and drying it too. And this, this, this big fella from kind of a bad part of Atlanta pulls in behind me. I mean, there, you know, there might be gangsters. This guy looked bad. I mean, he did look bad. And I wasn't taking the steroids anymore. And <laughs> so uh, he said he said basically kind of like you move your car so I can so I can wash mine. I said, dude, I'm drying it. When I'm done, I'll move it. <laughs> And the next thing I looked up, and here comes this, this honk of a man coming at me, and he didn't look like he was coming to talk. I mean, you talk about big hands, big, big everything. I'm like, shit. <laughs> but being an alcoholic, I'll be doggone if that's ever going to happen to me again. So rather than learn to move my car and not dry it in the, in the, in the thing, I went and bought a gun. I was so afraid. Um, I bought two of them. I wanted my girlfriend to have one, too, for her. What if I can't get to mine? In time out of... So she's carrying a gun in her purse. I'm carrying a gun. I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Had some other driving problems, and then, and then I'm going to get, get sober. Life, what, the keen alcoholic mind wasn't good. I bought a 911 Turbo, and if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's a very fast car. I bought it, and, uh, and if you don't think you can get a ticket for going 156 on I-40, I'm here to tell you, you can. <laughs> And uh, one night while driving to Wilmington, some people's home, to have a nice time at the beach, driving along, life was going, wasn't going so well at this point. I was with a nurse that I'd worked with. My girlfriend was pregnant, and my wife was very upset about the whole thing. <laughs> but screw that, I'm going to the beach. I'm driving along, and... Uh, and, but I got enough sense not to drive myself. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty loaded, so I let her drive. And, and I said, well, speed up. Let's get there. And, and, uh, and she was going 156 when we got clocked. And, uh, and when the lights turned and the guy flipped around, I said, man, keep going. I mean, we had unregistered guns, alcohol, things from the hospital that didn't belong to us, all kinds of stuff <laughs> in that car. And I wasn't going to throw any of it out, but... Uh, <laughs> But we were going to get away. And we did. We got off on the off-ramp. Now, the, again, I want to go back to this keen alcoholic mind, which I've just been so, so blessed to have intact. In <laughs> we got off on the off-ramp. I said, man, that was close. Jesus. I said, man, you, you need to let me drive. There's something wrong with your driving. Scoot over. So she gets on the other side, and I get in the driver's seat. Now, the normal person might, like, just pull off the off-ramp and sit there for 10, 15, 20 minutes, an hour a day. No, not me. I get right back on the highway. I just decide I'm going to drive 70 miles an hour to Wilmington. This event, in my mind, is now in the past. <laughs> but um, our law officers, uh, they're, they're, they didn't think it was the past. <laughs> and they, they, when they pulled us over, I tried again to kind of get away, but they didn't really hit it hard this time. I only got it at 110. And I thought, man, I'm not going to do this. So I pull over, and uh, I have never had been, the only one time in my life I was ever greeted by an officer with his gun out. And that's how they greeted us. I mean, they, they, they was gonna, I said, officer, I reassured him that I was a totally normal person. And <laughs> he might have thought I was a criminal or a bad guy or a crazy person or something. So I told him, I said, officer, I, I'm, I'm a doctor from right down there. I work in Dunn, North Carolina. I'm amazed after hiring me that place is even still open. And... Uh, <laughs> And I just reassured him that I was normal and that there was some mis mis mistake about this speed thing. And, um, and he assured me there wasn't. And uh, <laughs> he never searched my car. And, you know, it's amazing what you can talk people into. 
And, uh, and I went to Wilmington that night. I got, ended up getting back in my car and driving to Wilmington and uh, had, a, had a nice weekend there. But that, uh, that ticket was rather hefty, and, uh, and it took me a lot of work with a lot of lawyers to, to somehow or another get through that. And in three years into sobriety, I still had that. I, they reduced it to something where I could still work. That's, that's the kind of stuff that happened to me. Life seemed all right to me. Um, you know, I, you know I had an, again, I had an estranged wife and a strange girlfriend and, uh, and an estranged um, child's mother. And uh, <laughs> didn't have any place to live. I, li- I lived in an apartment because guys like me can't buy a home because you don't last anywhere you go. And I knew I wasn't going to last any amount of time anywhere. And I was just living along like that. Um, I, yeah, that's just the way it was. It got to me what happened got so bad. In Dunn, North Carolina, you, cannot, you can't drink the way I drank in Chicago in Dunn, North Carolina. There just is no place you can do that. You can't drink in anonymity. So what I would do is, is, is I would take those anesthetics and I would just basically use them every day, all day, to get through the week. And that's really what it, it didn't start like that. I did it in the beginning. It was a couple times a week just to get to the weekend where I could leave town and do the things I like to do and drink the way I like to drink, be with the people I like to be with. I don't know how to shag. I mean, there was no fun in Dunn. <laughs> um, those intervals got progressively shorter. You don't know how to shag either? <laughs> um, and those intervals between, it got shorter. I had to do it every other day. I had to find some relief every other day. Didn't even know what I was relieving. Didn't understand I was alcoholic. I had to find relief every day. I had to find relief at the end by 10 a.m. I didn't go to sleep anymore. I, 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 came, I, I, I came to. My life had gotten like this. I was on a cycle. And primarily it was uh, through anesthetics and going one a week. And I fought, I fought that my alcoholism and what it had done to me in my career. I fought that with everything I had. Um, I tried everything in the world to beat that. I, all that energy I'd thrown into everything I threw into that, I would go away, take long trips away, lock myself in places. I went back to my hometown and walked through my grade school thinking, something happened to me here. I'm sure it was grade school that made me like this. If I could just find... Never once entertained the notion I was alcoholic. It was the farthest thing from my mind. I was one crazy guy. I mean, depressed, maybe, yeah. I like that diagnosis, but not alcoholic. That's something just disgusting. And I did everything to beat it, everything under the sun. I had everything at my disposal that, that I could use. I, I went to counseling. In fact, we went to a marriage counselor once. It was not with a wife or a girlfriend. It was a pregnant gal myself. <laughs> thought we should go to the marriage counselor. And the, the counselor did ask me. She said, she asked me, said, let me talk to your wife about that. I said, well, she's back in Chicago. And the counselor wasn't alarmed. <laughs> um. And she did tell me, she, and right in the middle of that, I had to get up and find some relief for the way I felt. And my, and my pregnant girlfriend turned to her and she said, he does that all day, every day. And uh, she said, don't worry, he'll stop when the baby's born. So the way it ended for me is I was at that hospital and I knew that that hospital was going to get ready to do something to me. I could, I could read their faces. They, my time there had come, was coming to an end. I knew it. So, and I knew that part of that ending would involve them looking in my urine for, for substances that you shouldn't have in your urine. So I called my uh, pregnant girlfriend and I said, I need your urine, bring it to me quick. And, and she did, and I put it in a little IV bag and I hung it under my arm, ran a tube down to my shorts, and I walked around that hospital terrified for the day they were going to come. And they came, 
<laughs> and they and they interrogated me, and they said that, that we, we you know we we think that you they, they said they had come one time before, and they told me this. They said you can either drink or practice medicine. My reputation had gotten out. We don't care which it is, you pick, but it won't be both. And I thought to myself that day when they said that, that was the first time they came, I said, uh, God, if only that was a question. If only what you asked me was a question. God, if I could drink or practice medicine, I'd quit drinking. It, had, it was no longer fun. It was killing me. And I knew that. I had to do it. But it was killing me. It was that kind of a thing. The second time they came back, they interrogated me. They, they asked for the urine. I gave it to them. But I had been practicing so much that week that, that I, had, I had actually run out of urine. I'd run it down pretty low. And I had never given urines before, but apparently you've got to give enough to cover the temperature strip and the little thing for it to be a real urine. I didn't know that. So I gave them some urine about that much, and they, maybe that much, and they said it was, it was empty. And they said, well, you're going to need to come up with more. And I said, I don't have any more. <laughs> and... And they say, well, drink some soda pop until you get some more. And I'm thinking, damn, what am I going to do? I said, well, you send it to a lab, for God's sake. Labs use little samples, not big samples. Jesus, and uh, I thought it was unreasonable. But So I went back to the hospital. I said, where am I going to find urine that doesn't have things in it it's not supposed to be in? And uh, <laughs> um, so I looked around. And I went and looked at all the patients. And I thought, certainly there'll be somebody here. Well, the patients were taking more things than I was. <laughs> so I couldn't, couldn't, use their, couldn't use their urine. But I found her old jar of urine. Been sitting there four days and it was very cloudy. It looked more like milk than urine. So I filled that bag back up and I ran down there. I said, here it is. And they said, by God, you must be very sick. This is true stuff. And I said, no, I feel fine. And the guy looked at the temperature and it said 72 degrees because it just came off the shelf. A day or two later, I had I hit what is it hit my bottom. And what, what my bottom, what it was, was there was a day I got up, didn't get up, came to, went to work just like any other day. And uh, and uh, I had I needed relief. And I don't know if anybody in here has ever been given Thorazine. I would tell you, don't take it. I took and injected uh, a bunch of it, and I needed relief. And they, there's a reason they call that liquid state straitjacket. I don't advise you do that. <laughs> it wasn't good. I had an out-of-body experience, and I, at that point, um, I was done. The fear of where I was at was less. The pain of where I was at was now less than the fear of the, of the future. And I cashed it in. I turned it in. I was done that day. I told the folks, I said, I'm, I'm leaving the hospital. I need to get some help. So I called, the, I called the North Carolina Medical Board, who protects good citizens, and, uh, and I said, I want to go in anonymous. I said, I'm a doctor down here in North Carolina and done. I need some help, and I want to go in anonymous with just a number to protect my career. And the guy on the other line ended the phone and said, said, Mark, is that you? <laughs> so so I, I've not enjoyed 30 seconds of anonymity around what happened to me in my career. Every, every application I've ever filled out, I've had to be forthright about everything that's ever happened to me. And I'll tell you, it's never, ever bothered me. It's never injured me. Well, I didn't know what was wrong. I went to the treatment center, hung out there. Did, I did some art therapy. We had a lot of good stuff there. But there's only five things. It sounds bad. It, it, I tried to drink in the treatment center twice. Um, it seemed awfully reasonable to me. And there were other things I had not done this disease almost killed me. It just almost killed me. 
uh, when I came out of that treatment center, I came back to Dunn, and I hadn't learned five things that you can learn in treatment. And uh, to me, those five things are alcoholism is an illness. I got it. It won't go away. It will not be arrested, meaning I can't just go home and have some beers and watch the TV. It's going to escalate. And the fifth thing was Alcoholics Anonymous represents the most viable solution for long-term sobriety. I really hadn't learned any of that. I learned maybe it was an illness. Um, I wasn't fully convinced I had it. Um, and I sat in a treatment center three months and one week. I had good insurance. They gave me an extra week. Um, I sat there and I went back, got out, went to Dunn. And I don't know if anybody here remembers a guy named Bubba uh, in Dunn, North Carolina. Does anybody remember him? Um, he was a good guy. I, I kind of, in a sense, he saved my life. When I got back to Dunn, the very next day, what they told me in that treatment center was going to happen, happened. I was coming out of my skin. Now, I hadn't had a drink in three and a half months. I was coming out of my skin. I had a living problem. What they told me was true. I started to understand things about that fear, that, that, the way I handled resentment and that sort of thing. So I called the AA hut and done, and Bubba came and got me. And I tell you what, man, you know, when, when AA shows up, it's hard to recognize the solution it truly represents. I thought to myself, <laughs> here comes Bubba in the pickup truck. And I got pregnant folks, married folks, no, no job. I'm, I'm in deep trouble, no, no way to make money anymore. They don't want me back in my career. And he said, get in, we're going to go to a meeting, and I'll show you the solution. And we went. I did everything I thought I should do. And I, and I just, I just, I didn't realize the solution. I didn't, I just didn't. I didn't. And it's no fault of anybody else's. Uh, but I didn't. I, I didn't have a meaningful relationship with a sponsor. I didn't have a home group in, in any functional capacity. I mean, I had one. It was a name. It wasn't where I connected. I got a home group today and, and, and about 10 or 12 of them are here. That, that whole section back there. That's it. <laughs> They're frightening looking. Don't look at them. <laughs> it's been a rough night for me tonight. Uh, <laughs> I've heard it said, and I believe this, my home group is as much a part of me as my fingerprint. I feel like when I go places, I don't go anywhere without my home group. Now, I may be standing alone, but I'm not alone. A guy once said to me, a guy I work with, is a guy, his name's Jose, he's in the hospital. Jay and I have been seeing him regularly. Some of the other guys in our group have... He said to me, he said, what am I going to do? He said, you guys have meetings, but what am I going to do? And I tried to explain to him. I said, Jose, we're not just going to hang you out to dry. You're not just going to be sitting out there. You're going to be with us, connected to us, part of us, us as a group. You'll be a part of that. You're not going to be going to go to a meeting a couple times, maybe five times. Well, you're not just going to go to a meeting. You're going to begin to live an AA program with us. We'll show you how to do that. It's a program. You don't live in it. You bring it to your own life. And Jose, I, he, I know he's still in the hospital. He's confused about that. I'm just going to get to sobriety. I got sober, and I met folks in Alcoholics Anonymous. Tom, not just, not just folks, a folk, a person. And I, and I, I left AA, but I went to the International in 1995. And I'll tell you, that was a, that was a long, I just got to tell him, Tom. I got to tell him the truth. That was a long, ugly time. If you ever been to an international convention with Tom, it was terrible. He, he knew everybody there. I'm walking along trying to pick up girls, and everybody in the world... Stopping him to talk to him. Like, for God's sake, man, it was like going to the department store with my mother. I mean, it just, it just, it just kept going and going and going. I, I, I did meet a fine janitor from Seattle, nice girl, and uh, I remember that. But uh, at any rate, I just totally lost in Alcoholics Anonymous. Didn't understand a thing about it, and I don't know that it was because people didn't explain it to me. 
I just couldn't understand it, couldn't grasp it. And I know, I know a lot of people who go to A who, who have the same sentiments. Because when I meet them and talk to them, they, ref, they tell me the same things I know, that I know what they're dealing with. So I didn't have any of that stuff. I got going it. We started a group. We didn't tell them. I was a founding member of the primary purpose. There was a big fight about that. They tried to export me, tell me I wasn't a founding member. I am. I don't have a resentment about that. Um, I was there. We started. We did a big book workshop, and we broke into a group, and we got into action. And that's where I learned to do CPCPI treatment corrections. I learned what AA looks like in function. So what we do today, um, fast forward, I'm in Richmond, Virginia. We have a home group. Many of our people are here. We do a lot of work with professionals, a lot of work with the general public, a lot of work with corrections, and a lot of work with uh, treatment centers. I, I have not found that any of those areas, I love all of them. Like that fellow in the hospital, bringing him, that relationship, how it came about, is we've been working on the substance abuse service in the hospital to refer patients directly to Alcoholics Anonymous. It took us ages to work with them, to get them to recognize the solution A represented. And then once they, once they did, realize that we would come and see every single patient in that hospital they called us on. And unless somebody goes home real quickly, we're there. We're there. We will see every single patient, and we call them up, let them know we saw them. To date, we have two folks. Um, uh, we've had three, but uh, the one's name is Lisa, and the other name is Jose. That look to me to be prime candidates. Lisa has come into our group. She has a sponsor in our group, and they're working together. And, I, and I, one of us is going to sponsor uh, Jose. Now, he speaks Spanish, and, uh, but, but I speak AA. And, uh, and together, we, when we talk, we get through that. He speaks English, too. Um, that is a great joy. In fact, it, being in medicine, the, the substance abuse nurses, are, they go to a conference, a substance abuse conference, and they present. They have uh, academic presentations like this. And they, they submitted a, a presentation to do what's called a poster presentation, which is a huge poster they make. It's maybe you know, four feet by two feet. And it's, it's some piece of research. They had done some research and kept a number of all the patients they referred to AA. Their research is titled a novel approach for referring patients to Alcoholics Anonymous. And what we did, we, we told them, don't just send people to AA. It doesn't work. If you tell somebody to go to AA, that is so institutional. That's an institutional thing to say to somebody. That'd be like saying, uh, you got a problem with your hip? Go to an orthopedist. Really? What do they do? I don't know. Who are they? I don't know them. Any particular one? Go to anyone. <laughs> They'd be no good. Have you ever been? Nope. <laughs> but you need to go. My God in heaven. It, what alcoholic would heed that advice? As opposed to, I know somebody who had dealt with your problem successfully. Would you like to meet them? And if the, if the person says, yes, we come meet them in the hospital, it's just like the alcoholics, Bill Wilson, Bob Smith, and alcoholic number three, Bill D. Just like it, just like it. And it works the same way. It's personal. It, we, well, we, this isn't an institutional program. This is a personal program. We do it personally. So we do a lot of work with professionals in CPC in that area, a whole bunch of work. That's just one of our best, best, most promising projects, and we've extended it to another hospital. In terms of corrections, we, have, uh, we go to a, a jail, we go to a prison. Our prison meeting is our posters on the end down there. The guys made it, and uh, it's a medium security. They're all in there for a long time. They're, they're guys, they're, one guy's coming out uh, soon, but this is the kind of place guys go to do their time. That's what, that's what the warden has told us. Um, it's, uh, and we are beginning to develop, a, a, we got a new warden, a, a meaningful relationship, and on the 22nd of this month, we will meet with the counselors down there and talk to them about how to make a referral to Alcoholics Anonymous that works. Let them know what doesn't work. Don't coerce people. Don't threaten them. Don't, don't, don't 
provide any positive or negative reinforcement. The warden told us, he said, look, he said, I'm going to make people go. He said, we've got to get this program up and running. I said, we can't do it. Now, that was a deal breaker for me. He didn't know it when we sat down and we talked, but that would have been a deal breaker. I said, well, let me tell you why you can't do that. There's a tenant of just being, I have a, I, well, I have a master's in adult education. There are five tenants, oddly enough, and one of them is adults will naturally resist what they're being forced to do. That differentiates an adult learner from a, from a kiddie learner. Adults will resist what they're being forced to do. That's a tenant of adult education. Man, that's a tenant of AA. Don't we all know that? We will, we will resist what we're forced to do. I say, we will kill what we're trying to create if you do that with these people. We just can't do it. He said, how are we going to get them there? Well, I said, I'll tell you. You don't have to force them, but you can do this. You can say, the pro, whoever it is that, that, that gives them things, takes things away, the probation board, parole board, the, the folks that give them privileges that move them along, you can say they would look very favorably if you were do, taking ownership of your alcoholism and doing something to help that, that that would reflect very favorably on your, on your behalf. Now, anybody hearing that is going to know exactly what that means. That's the, that's the warden or the counselor telling you do this. <laughs> it will work out for you without making you do it. And so we sat down and we told him, that's how to deal with that. You, you continue to reemphasize those simple words with them. Now, we're going to meet with the counselors, and we're going to meet with uh, another group of people. And this was the thing that – someone nudged Wallace for a second. This is the thing that Wallace, <laughs> this is the thing that Wallace is going to come down and do. On the 22nd, we're going to meet with that group, and then, and then we're going to have Wallace going to come down and speak to the, the whole uh, sector of the facility. And that night, we're going to do some other stuff. But that project is alive and kicking. Every nursing student that goes through this nursing school at, VC, at, at the university where I am comes through our uh, home group. Well, what that's done for me um, in that, that spirit of service is it's changed my life. It's saved my life. It's saved my family. It's saved everything about, about me. I, I went back to the career. I was thrown out of the North Carolina Medical Board. got tired of seeing me. One day, I'd been going there for five years sitting in front of them, and they weren't going to let me go back to anesthesia because people just don't do well. After they steal all the drugs, it's just unpopular. I don't know why they're, they're so it's just they're bigoted people, I think. They don't have open mind. Uh, I went, uh, uh, did you say 2.30, right? So uh, um, they got tired of seeing me. They'd ask me, they'd make a mistake, and, and uh, my sponsor told me, he said, I said, I can't go back and do this anymore. This is driving me nuts. This is five years. I can't keep going and sitting in front of these people. My God, can't they give me my medical license back? My God, I deserve it. All I did was steal the drugs and some other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and after all, it's been five years. You'd think they'd forget, forgive. Jesus, what kind of, what kind of people are these? Well, he said, well, go back and make it a CPC thing. When you go there, tell them. When they ask you what you've been doing, tell them. Tell them about alcoholics Anonymous. So I started doing that. They got so tired of hearing that. They said, fine, get out of here, man. <laughs> we don't want to see you back again. I said, wait a minute. Let me tell you one more aspect. <laughs> uh, I got invited to a party here in Southern Pines. My friend is a surgeon at Moore Regional. I was still doing, I wasn't doing anesthesia. I got invited to that party. This is how I got back in my career. God, when God has work to do for you, the walls come down. And I went there to recruit a wife, and I left with one. And it was a successful mission. It wasn't the one I was supposed to recruit, thank God. She was hideous, man. That was frightening. <laughs> she was another anesthesiologist that my friend had tried to fix me up with. And he said, come on to this party. It was in the horse country around here. And uh, so I said, all right, I'll go and meet this gal. She was a single anesthesiologist. I went there. I didn't like her, but my wife was there. I met her, and we got married shortly thereafter. And she, uh, she would be here, but her hip is bothering her. And she's a strong member of Al-Anon. And that's a whole other story.
<laughs> well, you don't have the opportunity to marry someone that does that sort of thing. I'd, I'd suggest you do it. We will grow in ways that you couldn't imagine. Um, well, make a long story short, she, they said, we want you to come and cover our hospital in Sanford. And I said, I don't do anesthesia anymore. I started believing that I couldn't do anesthesia. I'd been five or six years without doing it. And she, and she said, no, we want you to do it. And I said, man, I, said, I ain't doing this. I was too afraid. I went home, and, and my now wife, then girlfriend, said, you need, to, you, know, you need to man up, face your fears. So I went, and I went, and I did start covering that hospital, and I found that I loved it, went right back in it. For some reason, that hospital, you know, Sanford is a small town, for those who are around here. I don't know why that credentialing committee didn't just look at my application and say, you know what, because you got to tell them everything. They ask you everything on that stuff. I don't know why they didn't just say, look, we appreciate you for applying, but... Uh, but you got to recognize we have a reputation to keep in this hospital. If this sort of thing were to become public knowledge, it would really reflect poorly on our hospital. So if you don't mind, we're going to pass you over. I had every expectation that they would say those words. My God, who wouldn't? They never did. And these were people, as far as I know, that knew nothing about alcoholism. So I went to work there, stayed there a while. Um, I wanted them to hire me. I begged them to hire me. They wouldn't hire me. <laughs> uh, and then I decided I wanted to go do a fellowship and get back into academic anesthesia. I had learned that you, 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 you get up where you fell down and you give back, you amend yourself to the very profession that you stole everything you could from. And I stole everything I could from that profession. You can steal money from patients. It's awfully easy when you just simply do your work contractually. When you just, if here's your anesthetic, take it, now give me my money. And that was really, that's the way I practiced medicine. That was it. And I didn't understand the theft. And that's legal theft. That's just as immoral, I think, as anything you could possibly do. I had really no concern about his welfare. Um, so I went and I got involved in a fellowship, got hired after that fellowship, and I now teach uh, academic anesthesiology, and I, and I do operations, uh, heart transplants, total artificial hearts, all kinds of weird stuff that I never dreamt I would ever get to do because I was a guy that just ran from every challenge in life. I didn't get to do things like that. I, I was in Dunn, North Carolina, for God's sake. We didn't, there was no, let me tell you, there wasn't a whole lot of surgical research going on in Dunn. We weren't on the cutting edge of anything. <laughs> in fact, when I got there, somebody asked me, said, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be somewhere where, where young people with ambition and their life ahead of them is, is, is going to be. So what, what this has done for me is um, um, my career has gone in ways I never dreamt it would go. Um, I've, I've been able to present at international, national meetings. I'll, I'll continue to do that. I do research. I teach residents. I do clinical anesthesia. I'm as concerned about patient welfare as any physician. Um, I'm as connected to the medical staff as anybody could be. AA has put me back in my life, in my rightful place. My home, I'm not in any jeopardy. I'm not, a, I'm not in any trouble. <laughs> um, I'm an assistant director of my, of my division, of our department. Um, I'm the director of, a, of another division inside of that. And, that. and those aren't grand titles, but they're responsibilities. And I, I really am grateful to have them. Um, it's, it's repaired my life. I've been married 10 years. That's a miracle. Uh, I threw the cardboard boxes away that I keep because I would have to move very regularly. Uh, it's just always happened. If I threw them away, they, they did mold and rot. And, and my wife said, when are you going to throw them away? So a couple of years ago, I threw them out. And uh, that was a ceremonious thing, throwing away perfectly good boxes. Alcohol, I never throw away good boxes. You never know when you're going to need them. You've got to be able to pack your stuff quickly and move on. Um, in, in, uh, in terms of incarceration, I, I am absolutely convinced that you can be absolutely incarcerated without ever being behind walls. And the message we carry behind those walls is, uh, is not the message of freedom out there. It's the message of freedom in here. 
There is no worse feeling than being free out there incarcerated in here. There is no worse feeling when you think to yourself, my God, I should be living happy. I should be joyous, happy, and free. But I'm nowhere even near it, and there's no logical reason why I shouldn't be. No logical reason. And, and this program has, has brought me that freedom. And this conference and being with you all, that's uh, just off the record. This is my favorite con- conference. You all my favorite group of people, barring any conference that, that I, I attend. And so uh, thank you uh, for having me speak. Thank you.